0: Give your attention to the reading of God's word. Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, we are continuing in this season, this year, in the book of Psalms, and years prior, in the four years that we have celebrated Lent prior to this year, we have looked at the Gospels and the Epistles. And so, uh, using the entire scripture as our foundation and our only infallible rule of practice or our standard for living and doctrine and practice, Uh, we are now turning to the book of the Psalms to see how is Christ put forth in the Psalms in such a way as to help us see our deep need for him. These psalms that we are examining show us a number of issues in the life of Israel. And those issues are still present today in the life of the church. And saying Israel and church, we understand that these are one and the same. And so the, the word of God given to Israel in these psalms does not just apply to Israel, but it applies to us. And in applying it to us, we have to see how Christ is present in these passages. So I want to look at four elements of this psalm, really three elements of the psalm, three divisions of the psalm, and then a move to see how is it that Christ would deliver us from the very possible danger, very real danger of failing to enter. I want to look first at the command to joyfully worship our Creator and our King. And each portion of this passage of these passages, each section, demonstrates an aspect of God's deeds and his nature. That God as he is doing things is revealing who he is. In the Greek mind, being and doing are very divorced. But in in God's ways, being and doing are together. They're harmonious. He does in order to teach who he is to his people. And so as he's delivering them, he also is being their shepherd and revealing that he is their maker. And so we not only come in joyfully, we also must move from joyful worship to reverent submission in worship Praise to worship as a journey, and then from there, the command is issued by this psalmist speaking to these people to not harden their hearts, and then he references something in the history of Israel and says that these Israelites who he's speaking to are very much in the possibility of repeating the sins of their fathers. And so, there is a real danger for the Christian to not enter his rest, and we're going to see just exactly how the New Testament represents this psalm almost in, not in entirety, but in a large majority, to the readers of the book of Hebrews. And so, the the writer of Hebrews applies this to Christ, and we're going to be looking at how this psalm applies to us today. This psalm, just like we saw last week in Psalm 121, this psalm reiterates or represents a, an event in the life of Israel. We saw last week how God had established for Israel a pattern of life that three times a year all the males in Israel must journey to that city which he chose, Jerusalem, in order to present themselves before the Lord. And we emphasized last week how there was a great danger in that journey, that that even as Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, that one was leaving Jerusalem and going to Jericho. And as soon as he gets outside the city gates of Jerusalem, he falls among robbers. He, they lie in wait for him along the road. And he not only faces danger of sun and moon and part, uh, being parched in a wilderness, he faces also the danger of other men who are lying in wait for him. And so this psalm, in a very similar way, is a song of ascent. It's a song uh, that is a call to worship, and very much, uh, it's very possible that this is relating to the group of Israelites as they go up to Jerusalem. If you remember from the life of Jesus, his parents journey in a caravan up to worship, and then they return back to Nazareth, and he's left behind. And so they have to then make the decision, do we continue with the caravan or do we go get our son? And they indeed went and got their son. It was a dangerous thing that they had to consider. So the people of God in this psalm, it's my, it's my reading that these are a group of people who are journeying together and they are encouraging one another with reminders of who God is and what he's done. God had established this as a pattern in Israel for the purpose that the people of Israel would not forget their history. And that's exactly what this psalm does. It reminds them about their history. So not only in the liturgy or the, the form of worship of Israel in those days, in having to make a journey to Jerusalem, the psalmist at some point in this psalm, verse 7, at the break of that verse, he reminds them of their history. So their history is supposed to be lived and read. Their history is supposed to be relived and remembered. Even if this isn't a song of a sense, it's possible that you could interpret it in a different way. Even if it's not a song of a sense, it's at least a song of journeying into the temple of God and into the presence of God. Verse one: Oh come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the Rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. So at the onset all of this worship that is being encouraged among these pilgrims is joyful worship. And it's worship that's exuberant. I was reading a commentator yesterday and he used the phrase full-throated. It's have you ever been to a basketball game or a football game of a, of a team? I know some of you have because I was at the Super Bowl party for a brief few minutes. And this this happens when we are seeing someone who is fighting for us, who is doing the game on our behalf. They're our team. We talk about it like, oh yeah, we won that day. Or we had a good game today, but we couldn't convert at the end. And, and we, we put ourselves, we, we rest ourselves on these teams and we become a part of them. There are Buckeyes, aren't they? If I say OH, you know what to say. See? And so we attach ourselves naturally, as humans made in God's image, we attach ourselves naturally to those who are fighting for us. And when they win, we rejoice because it's our win. And so the psalmist is essentially saying, worship the Lord in joy and in holiness and in splendor, but do it with thanksgiving, with joyful noise. Isn't that a wonderful phrase, joyful noise? Have you ever heard children playing instruments when they're not very old? That's, it's noise, all right, and it's a joyful noise. And so this is a command to come in with exuberance. God is not a God who deserves stuffy cold worship he's a god which deserves and is its right to give him exuberant full-throated worship at each step further into the presence of god these pilgrims must respond rightly to god's revelation it is absolutely right to worship god in joy because he is their rock he's the foundation for the life of israel He's the foundation for the people of God. It is he who rescued them out of Egypt. And because he has done such a great work on their behalf, they ought to respond in grace. You see, they're not cultivating joy. They're not working up a fleshly creation of their own soul or mind or worship culture in order to get God's action. They are worshiping, as verse 3 says, for, because. This is such a very important pattern in the psalm, and the psalms usually will say, let us worship, and then there's this transition where the, the psalmist uses the word for. Some translations say because. You can think of it as, let's do this. Why do we do this again? And then someone responds, because God is our great maker and our great deliverer. Israel was enslaved in Egypt. They were totally unable to deliver themselves. And they're to remember to worship God in great joy and glory because he was the one who delivered them. It's interesting to to read this psalm and kind of remember and just take some time before we get too far. But what were they doing in Egypt? they were making what? They were making bricks without straw. Isn't that an interesting thing to remember? That's what mostly comes to our mind. And who are they supposed to worship? The rock. And so already in the psalm, we're beginning to pick up on this theme. The rock of Israel was the name for God's revelation at a particular place in Mount Horeb And this rock was the source of not only the foundation of their life as a people, but in a very real sense, the source of all of their lives, as we're going to see in just a few minutes. He's not only delivered them from bondage, but he's also delivered them from their thirst. He's quenched their thirst. You see, the rock at Horeb was a source of water, The people grumble against the Lord as we're about to see in the next few verses. God tells Moses to strike the rock. The rock is struck. It bears the blow of the people's grumbling. And then out from the rock comes forth a stream of water. And so he not only delivers them from what they were powerless to deliver themselves from, but rather he also sustains them in the moment of their grumbling. You see, God's grace is not just delivering, it's sustaining. And that's exactly why the psalmist is calling Israel to praise. And here's that transition. Why do we praise with joy? For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands form the dry land. So we're beginning, there's a snowball happening in the theme of this psalm about God's Hands and about rocks and stones and and the source of joy and water and the sea and the land, this theme is beginning to develop in the psalm. The psalmist calls his fellow Israelites not just to remember that he 's their deliverer but he 's also their creator. This is so common in the Old Testament that, as Israel understood her life as a people they always connected the reality of the creator God is the same deliverer God. This is the same God who made the world and who brought us out of that world which we were trapped in, the world of Egypt. And so for the Israelites, these two elements of God's nature and actions in history are linked inseparably. He's not just the one who led us out of Egypt, But he is such a great God. He's the same God who made everything. We ought to, at this point, reflect why they emphasize that he's the creator. Because if he's the creator, how much more beautiful and gracious is it that he condescended to come and grab a few hundred Jewish persons who were trapped in bondage? You see, God is not just the God who exists on the realm of creating heaven and earth. He's the God who continues to act in history and intervene in events for his people on their behalf. Though the people in Egypt had idols, and though the Egyptians indeed have idols, if you ever want a a good Bible study, take some time to find a a study Bible or a good commentator. Uh, John Gill would be a good place to start. He's a master of the Old Covenant scriptures. He was the pastor right before Charles Spurgeon, who many of you are familiar with that name. Uh, John Gill wrote about in great detail how each of the plagues was a mockery of one of the Egyptian gods. They worshipped the Nile, and so God turns it to blood. They worshipped their gods who brought up crops and brought forth livestock, and so God was punishing the idolatry of the Egyptians and showing you have no gods. These are merely idols that are no gods at all. They have no power. And that's that's what that word means. That Elohim, the great, high, almighty, all-powerful God, he is the power over every power. The powers which he destroyed in Egypt are no powers at all. So great is our God that he upholds the depths of the earth with his hands. That's what the psalmist is trying to bring to memory for the people. You were trapped making bricks with your hands. And yet this is the God who not only delivered you with his hand, he is upholding the foundation of the earth with his hand. If you've ever sung that song with children, next time you sing it, you might sing it with a little bit more holy fear. He's got the whole world in his hands. What a beautiful thing to say to a child. That's who this God is. He's our God. He's not just the foundation or rock for Israel. He's the foundation and rock for the whole world. The very fact of the earth's continued existence is that God is sustaining his creation. This God is not the rock of Israel alone, but the one who upholds everything. And he doesn't just uphold everything. The psalmist continues to ascribe glory to the Lord And he holds the heights of the mountains and the depths of the sea. We saw this last week in this phrase, merism, M-E-R-I-S-M. It's just a wonderful word so that you're beginning to pick up on this as you spend time in your scriptures. That the writers will usually do something where they say, the Lord made the land and the sea. And they used two opposites. We saw last week it was day and night, the sun and the moon. They used two opposites to emphasize the whole. God didn't just make the land and the sea. He also made the sky. And not just the sky and our atmosphere. He made our galaxy and our solar system and the galaxies that we're moving past. He made everything. He didn't just make you or Adam with his hands. Indeed, he formed the dry land. And it's interesting because when you go and read Genesis 1 and 2, it doesn't say that God used his hands to set apart the dry land from the sea. But here he does. And I think the reason why is because the psalmist is trying to say God is personally invested in his creation. And if you remember the theological fact that he didn't use his hands as it was recorded in Genesis 1, don't become proud of remembering that detail and yet not remember, but he did make you with his hands. And so I think this is what the psalmist is aiming at. He's, he's trying to encourage his fellow Israelites on this journey into the presence of God to remember why. We're not just coming out of duty or in repetition. We're coming with a constant reminder, a present memory of his prior action. That's what the psalmist is encouraging. As we come into worship, we must remind ourselves of the deeds of God. We must hear his word and respond rightly in remembering his revelation. God is not just the owner of the earth in this psalm. He is the owner of everything. Everything exists in our world. Everything in creation exists to bring him praise. In Revelation 4, there's a wonderful scene where the, the people in heaven ascribe glory and worthy, worthiness to God. And then it says, for you have created all things and by your will they exist and were made. That is, everything exists. This carpet, this, these walls, the, the, the breath in my lungs, your car, your children, your marriage, you, pencils exist to bring God praise that's what this psalmist is saying. He made the dry land. He made the sea. He made the heights of the mountains. He made the depths of the sea. Have you ever considered just how scary the depths of the sea are? And I think that's why the psalmist is mentioning this here. There's a place on our world where the sea is so deep that if you took the Everest mountain of the Himalayas, the, the, the highest group of mountains in our whole world, where it's so high that it takes teams of people and years of training for men to make an ascent with special oxygen tanks to get to the pinnacle of Everest. If you took that mountain, you could put it under the sea. And if you put it at the deepest place in the ocean, there would still be a mile of water until we get to the top. That's who this God is. He's the God who it's incomprehensible how powerful our God is. Seeing the heights of who he is, the psalmist then moves and encourages his fellow worshipers to not just come with joy, don't just come with exuberant praise, but now there's a transition to bowing down in worship. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. There's that transition. Why do we bow down? For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Isn't that interesting that the psalmist uses his hand again? So what are in God's hands? The heights of the mountains, the foundations of the earth. He formed the dry land, and now he's upholding Israel in his hand. And he's not upholding them in his hand as some large atlas who is just shouldering the burden of the world begrudgingly. He's holding them in his hands. You see, we don't put in our hands things that we have to hold with the weight of our body. He's able to uphold Israel just with his hands alone. Now, of course, this is human language to describe the reality of God, but the reason God is communicating himself this way is He made us in his image to be able to understand who he is. And so he condescends in language to describe himself accurately. While on the periphery, it's right to celebrate with exuberance and joy. It must yield, it must move to wonderful, holy, reverent submission. Another psalm repeats this exact same idea. In just a few psalms, the psalmist will remind the people, It is He who made us and not we ourselves. So, what is the psalmist saying that is happening when we do not worship God in reverence and in fear, in whole submission of our lives? It is idolatry of the self. When we do not worship God, it is as if we are saying in our heart of hearts, We are our own cause for existence. That we made ourselves and we give destiny to our lives. Israel as a people then are seen as a group of sheep. It's very interesting in modern political discourse that people will use the term sheep to describe the masses. And they use it as a term of disparagement as, as these great politicians are going to help these terribly wayward, unwashed masses of people who are like sheep who just, they need to be told what to do. And for the Christian, it's actually a, a term of endearment, isn't it? They use it to mock the people and yet in God's economy of language, the term sheep is is a wonderful term. It is true that we were, as Peter says, we were like sheep straying from, but now we've come to the pastor or shepherd of our souls. It is true that God's people were going astray in their hearts, but it isn't as if God is angry with them being sheep. They have to, they have to love their sheepness. If that helps you understand, it's right. As we'll see next week in Psalm 23, it's right to consider yourself a sheep who needs to be taken care of. This is what I think the psalmist is saying. He's wanting to remember that we are sheep. We need protection. And he is a great God who gives protection. Therefore, because he is such a great God, we must respond in joyful and holy worship to him. But we do not just respond to God's grace in external worship. And that's exactly where the psalm goes to. The psalmist then says in verse 7, today if you hear his voice. One comment before we move any further. I've broken it up on the slides just to emphasize that the, the versification of your scriptures is not inerrant. And it also is not very vital. If you disagree with where I've broken this verse, that's okay. But just know that the verses only came after, I think it was 1420 something. And and at first the chapters weren't even a Christian invention. They were imported from Judaism. Now I I love chapters and I think they're right to use and verses as well. But every once in a while verses are just not in a perfect place. And so it's not a problem for us to to make that sort of a a move. Verse 7 At the end of that verse it says today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and as at Massa on the day in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof though they had seen my work. What was hinted at before in verse 1 the rock of our salvation has now come dramatically to the forefront as the psalmist directly reminds the people of their history at Mount Horeb, what took place in Exodus 17, 1 through 7. And though we've preached on this passage three times before, I want to just briefly summarize what takes place. The people are told to go up to this place, and when they get there, there is no water. And so they grumble immediately before God, and they come and they war against Moses, and when you read the the account, it doesn't seem that dramatic. But Moses responds, and the 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 language there doesn't fully capture, I think, what is going on based on Moses's and the Lord's response. They say there's no water here, and and then Moses says, "Why are you grumbling against me?" And so there must be something in the subtext there that's emphasizing just how violently and and grumbling. Uh, violent, their grumbling was against Moses. They were really coming after Moses. And they were maligning God in their hearts, saying, why did he bring us out of Egypt for us to die in the wilderness? That's what they were saying out loud and in their hearts. While journeying through this desert, they came to a place without water, and they grumble. Now, it's interesting to note, if you're in the desert, you need water. Is that true? If you're going on a journey in the desert, you must take water or you must quickly find water. Men can live for a while without food, but we cannot live without water for even more than a day or two. It's, it's very, unless you've prepared and are somewhat healthy, it's very, very difficult to go without water, especially if you already start, as most of us are constantly dehydrated, that if you start in that place, being already in the wilderness, not having freshness with you as you travel. But not only did they need water themselves, their livestock and their children, all of Israel was journeying. And so it, was, it would be right for Israel to ask God for water. It would not be right to grumble against the Lord. That's the problem. That's the problem, is they did not rule over their own hearts, but they quarreled against the Lord. In their quarreling, as Exodus seventeen seven says, God says of their action that they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? You see, the, the lack of water, they responded to their circumstance with disobedient unfaithfulness, which became for them a doubt of God's presence. So they let a circumstance reveal what was in their heart, which is they were not firmly convinced of God's presence among this, among among them. What is totally striking, however, having covered that history, what's totally striking about this psalm, maybe you caught it, maybe you didn't. It actually I didn't catch it until my third pass through the psalm is the voice has totally changed. In the prior verses, it was, come, let us. Come, let us go up. Let us bow down. Let us kneel. And now the psalmist has begun to speak to these people. And interestingly enough, he's not just saying, remember when the Lord did this, or remember when you did this to the Lord, or today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. When he did it, he says, when I did it. It's a very interesting thing. The worshipers are no longer in this psalm talking amongst themselves, but now the psalmist is beginning to directly address the people. And Hebrews, as we'll look at in just a few minutes, says that the Holy Spirit himself is directly addressing the people through this psalmist. Let's go back and look at that very quickly. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, And then verse 9, when your fathers put me to the test. Isn't that interesting? How the psalm goes from, Come, let us bow down, to, Don't harden your hearts if you hear God's voice when they put me to the test. What did Exodus say? It says, They put the Lord to the test. So who is speaking? The Lord is speaking. The Holy Spirit addresses these Israelites and directly warns them to not repeat the sins of their spiritual fathers. Even though these Israelites who were worshiping were worshiping in the land, it was possible that they didn't come to God in whole submission. What was the problem in the wilderness? They did not have the faith in God's promises and the trust in him that he would continue to be and do what he had been and done, And so they went astray in their hearts and they were not able to enter the land. But now in this psalm, this psalm is given to Israel after they've already entered the land. And probably, although we don't know exactly when the psalm was written, it was already given after they had already had some kings. And so this psalmist, speaking on the Holy Spirit's behalf, says to them, you can do what your fathers in the wilderness did, even though you're living in the land. Isn't that an interesting fact and a, a danger? Quite quite. really, it's a danger for these Israelites, a danger to which they are susceptible. He continues to say, for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter their rest. And here the psalm ends and it just leaves the people who've heard this warning to contemplate, What is the real danger for disobedience? We're already in the land. But God says, take care lest you don't enter my rest. Wait, we're in the promised land. We have the promises of God. No, there's still a journey that Israel is supposed to be going on, that each Israelite must come. They must not only joyfully respond to God's actions in history, but they must themselves reverently bow down and worship him. And then the psalmist in the height and in the middle of this call to come and worship in truth and in humility then says, if you hear God's call to come, make sure you come. Make sure you come fully and totally. Remember, God had demonstrated his presence with the people in their time of the exodus. He constantly was in their midst, giving them instruction through Moses of what to do and how to live and to separate themselves from Egypt. And then in the final plague, he gave them a specific command to slay a lamb and put its blood on the doorposts of their house, lest the angel of death come and take the firstborn even of the Israelites. God had been in their midst and was showing himself strong. And not only after the the Passover, he himself caused the Red Sea to come and swallow the Egyptian armies and chariots. And so God had been in their presence and yet the chief point of the test that the Israelites put to God was, is God in our midst or is he not in our midst? Having seen God's ways and proofs, Over and over again, they still put him to the proof and put him to the test. God had not only just delivered them in the Exodus, he had patiently for 40 years put up with their grumbling and given them food, even though they asked for it in the wrong way, and water, even though they asked for it in the wrong way, and had preserved Moses and the other leaders of Israel, though they tried to kill him and rebel against him. God had still been gracious to them so that the next generation might inherit the promises, despite the sins of those in the wilderness who eventually die. Upon bringing them near to enter the land... If you remember the story, they send in spies. The spies come back, give a false report, saying that the people are too strong for us to overtake. Caleb and Joshua, two out of the twelve, come back and give a good report. Later on in the New Testament and Isaiah, they will re bring up that idea who has believed our report? To who? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You see, it requires the Holy Spirit to cause faith to arise in the hearts of those who are commanded to faithfully obey and enter the land. They do not enter the land and they grumble against the Lord and they say, would that we had died in Egypt. The depth of that statement is very hard to understand, especially for those who are created in Christ and have a new mind and a new heart. The desire in the midst of the things, having familiarity with the deliverance of God, having been led by him for 40 years, not 40 days, not a few seasons, but for 40 years seeing miraculous power. Every morning there is bread that shows up at my doorstep. And to say in response to those gifts, I wish I had died in Egypt. It's interesting to note that God actually brings this to the forefront, as we'll see in just a minute in Numbers, that they had seen 10 plagues, and yet through their wanderings in the wilderness, God says they've tested him 10 times. I think that's significant. I don't think that's a coincidence. So God gives a declaration in Numbers 14, 22, and 23. He says of Israel that none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, none of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of them who despise me shall see it. It's it's easy for us when we read the accounts in the Old Covenant, and we read them in such a way as, well, they were just asking for water. And we we demonstrate ourselves as as straying in our hearts in a sense, don't we? They weren't just asking for water. They were saying, God, what you did in bringing us out of Egypt was wrong. We should have stayed there. You should have let us die in our sins. And, and by sins, I'm of course interpreting for us. They should have died in their bondage. It would have been better to keep making bricks without straw than for us to come in heart to the rock of our salvation Just as the psalmist draws an allusion or a reference and applies Exodus 17 to the Israelites of his day, the Hebrew writer takes that very same psalm and quotes it at great length from verse 7 through 10 uh, and applies it directly to the Christians of his day that he's writing to. And so we come to a psalm like this and say, well, that surely can't happen to us. We're We're saved by grace and they were saved under the law. And the New Testament would say, you're totally missing the point. Hebrews says, they heard the good news just as we did. So after quoting this psalm at length, the writer applies it to those who have come to Christ. He then gives the church a warning saying, take care brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful, and the chief person who is prone to its deceit is not your neighbor, it's you. This is why Christian community is so essential is because we cannot by nature see what we are deceived in. This should cause fear of the Lord to enter the heart of those who are truly Christians. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, the reason the Hebrew writer does this in in including this statement is he wants to give true assurance to those who are really in Christ, but he wants to destroy every false assurance. It is not gracious for pastors or the writers of scripture or anyone reading the Bible for their own edification to cling to false assurance. I'm trusting Christ because I go to church every week and I'm a pretty good person and i try to do what's right before god and i i think i'm better than other people or i i you know they're mean and i try to be nice and and the heart which compares itself with others in this way is very dangerous because sin is deceitful and we cannot by nature without god's grace and usually without other people in the church showing us we cannot see what is keeping us from Christ but what is always keeping us from Christ is deep love of secret sin and the secret sins which are so often common of pride and worry and anxiety and lust and greed lust for power you ever been promoted at a job get ready You ever been promoted in the church? Get ready. You see, these sins, according to God's commandment to Cain, it's crouching at the door. It's not going to show you where it is. It's trying to creep in like the serpent slithered his way into the garden. Now, at that point, he probably didn't slither on his belly. Just go with me for a second. There's this wonderful, I I sometimes like, although they're extremely violent, I sometimes like martial art movies. There's this movie that I really like that was made back in the 2000s called Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And the reason it's called that, just for an illustration, for cultural relevance, the reason it's called that is because there's this person in the movie who's a secret ninja. They're, they're They're not training with anyone else, they're hidden, and I believe if I'm remembering right, it's been probably a decade since I've seen it, that person is actually like a princess or something. And she steals a sword and institutes a rebellion. And there's there's this amazing dynamic in the movie that happens because she's able to go unnoticed. That's what I believe the psalmist and then the Hebrew writer is saying. If you hear God's voice. If you're listening to scripture, if you're listening to godly anointed preaching, take care, be careful, lest you harden your heart and do not actually come to him, even though you've come into the land, even though you look like you're a Christian or appear to be a Christian, take care, lest you harden your hearts and harbor secret sin. There's another time when the Israelites are going into the land and they take this city called Ai and there's this person, Achan. He takes these idols and and goods that were supposed to be burnt and he hides them in his tent. And he covers up this little tiny sin of just taking a few things when God had said, burn it all. And what happens is his whole family is complicit in this hiddenness. And God, moment after moment, chooses the tribes and then set apart the tribes for the clans. And then the fathers within the clans and then comes to Achan's father's house's name. And then they come to Achan and over and over again, God is drawing straws to, to say, I see you, Achan. I see you. And then it gets to Achan and God, God brings a judgment against him. He's trying to say, this is what harboring secret sin in your house is like. It will destroy you. Just as in the wilderness, it is possible to be among the throng and the, the great group, it is also possible today to have familiarity with Christ without reality. What did Jesus say in Matthew 24 and 25 when giving warnings? Lord, we cast out demons in your name. We did many mighty works in your name. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. I never had relationship with you. I never approved you as one of my own. So take care if you hear his voice today. Therefore, the Hebrew writer warns us to be sure that Christ has not just captured us in form, but that he's captured us in truth, that we've truly come to him. If we believe these words, we will therefore exhort one another every day. Practical takeaway of how to institute a faith-filled obedience to these verses would be to, for you, create relationships in the church so that you can exhort one another while it is still the day. We do an okay job with this in our church, but there is not someone who is tracking each individual. You cannot lie in your heart to those around you in the church and have it be detected. That is to say, if you are like Achan and you're harboring sin in your life, don't wait for it to be discovered. Don't hope one day in your heart of hearts that it'll come out during a prayer meeting as someone prophesies. Don't wait for you to be discovered. It is a very dangerous thing to hold on to sin. If you want an illustration of that, I would, I would encourage you another cultural relevant application here. Remember what happens when Frodo puts on the ring. The powers of darkness see him. Okay, of course, we insert ourselves and we're, we put ourselves in that story. We're either Sam or we're Frodo. That's not the point of the Lord of the Rings. The point is that the one ring using sin for your own pleasure will absolutely destroy you. John Owen, in his book on temptation, on the mortification of sin in the life of believers, he said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. How true that is. Does this mean, however, having addressed this, having heard this great and dire warning, does this mean That Christians, those who truly come to Christ, can lose their salvation or fall away from him. This is a question you should be asking yourself when you come across these passages. And I would answer no. For those who truly come to Christ, who actually come to Christ in a faith-filled obedience that is not pretense that is not vanity or putting up a false mask, being a hypocrite, that's what hypocrite means, wearing a mask, that for those who truly come in their heart to Christ and trust upon him and fly to him and throw themselves, as it were, on the mercy of the court, that for those people, they have every ounce of security, that they are truly in Christ. This is a wonderful, wonderful promise. In John 6, 35 and 36, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. What did they eat in the wilderness? Bread, manna. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What did Jesus say to the woman at Samaria? If you come to me and drink, I'll give you water that lasts forever. But I said to you, verse 36, I said to you, the Pharisees and those who wouldn't come to him, that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Same danger existed for the Pharisees as it did in the wilderness, that they could come near to Christ. And even of the 5,000 who he had just fed earlier in John 6, they could have eaten the loaves and the fishes, but not really come to him. In fact, he tells them, I tell you, you're only following me because of the loaves and the fishes. I fed you and that's why you want to come. But Jesus is saying, I've so much better food for you than just loaves and just fishes. It's not just physical bread, physical drink. It's soul food. It's soul drink. It's what satisfies and what longs. And verse 37 is perhaps one of the greatest promises that Jesus uttered in the gospels. All that the father gives me will come to me if you were in the Sunday school hour, that wonderful part of Tulip, irresistible grace. What what a great song. Prone to wander, Lord I fear it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, can you finish it? Take and seal it, because I'm wandering. Seal it for thy courts above. That's what we need. And the heart which is wondering whether it is truly come to Christ or not, is thrilled with promises like this. That is one of the great marks of a true believer is acknowledging, freely admitting, Lord, if it were up to me, I would wander from you. And yet Jesus says to that heart, all that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Are you worried about being kicked out of the garden? Every once in a while, you should be. It's helpful, it's, it's profitable for Christians to fear the Lord always. But the heart which fears the Lord runs and turns from evil and clings to and delights in and freely receives not just the warnings, but also the promises. Indeed, so sure is the promise of the new covenant, which we live in and the Israelites in the wilderness did not live in, so sure is the promise of the new covenant that God tells Jeremiah about all of this as a final settling of the wanderings of Israel. Everyone quotes Jeremiah 31. But a great promise is also in Jeremiah thirty-two forty. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. Here's the, here's the precious part. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. You see, the Christian does not boast in his strength of being a Christian or, or in his strength of trusting Christ. The Christian boasts in this, that God's got a hold on me. I was singing a worship song this morning after having a, a very difficult night uh, of, of troubling dreams and, and struggling to hold on to the promises of God. And the chorus of the worship song that I was listening to as I was getting ready w- screams out in a bridge, you won't let me go. That's what the promise of the new covenant is. Christ will not cast us out if we truly come to him. So, having heard not only warning, but gracious promise, let's not just come in external worship, but let's come truly in our heart. Let's close. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel. We pray that you would train us to cling to not just the promises, but also the warnings, that we would receive both sides of that two-edged sword as your word says in Hebrews, that your word is living and active and able to cut to the quick. Lord, we pray that you would reveal those places in our hearts and in our lives where we love sin and we like our remaining corruption and we're trying to resurrect in a horrible way the flesh. We pray, Lord, that you would allow us to totally come to Christ with all of our life, that he would be our food, our drink, that he would be precious and sweet to us as he is. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.